0: All right, Quad Cities, welcome to another episode of Everything Combat, because life is a fight. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Jeffrey Wilson, the genius of the operation. I'll take that. That's what's up. And today, Jeffrey, we've got a very special guest. Now, look, not necessarily was he a sports star, although he has a sports background, but he's a a bit different and a higher-level star altogether.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you're talking 10 years in the SEALs. Four years private military contracting. I mean, what he's doing, we're obviously going to get into it, what he's doing to help veterans in such a unique way that doesn't have anything to do with pharmaceuticals. I am very anxious to have the conversation with this gentleman.
0: Yeah, and there's something that you didn't mention I'll pull out a little bit later in the interview that will that'll, that'll surprise you a little bit about his combatives background that I found really, really cool. Let's do it. Now, listen, as you mentioned, former Navy SEAL, the elite, the tip of the spear kind of a guy he has come up with He is the ceo and founder of heroes and horses and their their mission statement is heroes and horses exist to redefine the relationship between challenge and purpose by reintegrating combat veterans through an innovative comprehensive and effective process that uses the wilderness the horse human connection and a proven leadership model and so our guest today ceo of human uh, of heroes and horses is none other than Micah Fink. Michael, welcome and thank you for being here.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Bud. Happy to be here.
0: Now, when I first heard about this, and I'm trying to remember who introduced us. Do you remember who introduced us by phone? Yeah,
2: it was, it was Mike Wolf introduced us. That's actually. right,
0: Mike Wolf, my good buddy. Um, I found it very interesting, and, and the the program that you guys are doing <laughs> is is really changing the model for for the way these <laughs> veterans with PTSD are being treated. I think. Because you've been so successful, right?
2: Absolutely. I mean there's there's a systemic problem and, and ultimately it's not combat. It's the process that they encounter when they come home from war. Uh that's really the problem. It's not combat and you know, I'll talk more about that later on, but ultimately it's a it's a reintegration program and it's a direct reflection of the only experiences that I've had in my life.
0: And tell us, you know, you were obviously, I'm sure, hearing when you when you're still in the Navy you're hearing about a lot of veterans committing suicide. It's got to be affecting you guys going, man, what is going on? You know, the transition back to civilian life has got to be hell, this and that. You made a decision to not make that transition like everybody else. You took a trip, and, and tell us about that trip that you that you took.
2: Yeah, I mean, I got, I got home from combat, and, uh, you know, the first person you see is a 25-year-old grad student that wants to prescribe you a series of medications after about 45 minutes, and putting you in some soft talk therapy. And, um, you know, I got diagnosed as a combat related bipolar disorder and, uh, and you know, and, and being a totally awesome guy. That was my self-diagnosis. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, I, it really left a mark on me and I got up and I was like, you know, I think you have PTSD. I got an argument with the psychologist and we got, you know, back and forth. I left, I never returned. And that left a real mark on me. And, and ultimately what I did was uh, I ended up going to the Amazon and, and soloed a five or six hundred miles in a canoe with a local Indian that I ended up contracting. And uh, it turned out to be one of the worst experiences of my entire life. And uh, it, was a, it was a major turning point and And it was the key factor that ultimately led me to where I am today.
1: Yeah, if, if, if I ask, like, what was it that was so I thought that was like a good cleansing thing for you? What was it down there that made it so horrible?
2: Have you ever read Theodore Roosevelt's book about being in the Amazon? I, I yeah. have read that
0: book extensively. I've heard about it. The River of Doubt.
2: River of doubt everybody died um it was it's a it's a very vicious place like everything bites you, everything stings you when I talk about remote i mean i've I've ridden horses from New Mexico to Arizona, wild mustangs I've packed all over the country and most of the wildernesses that we have in the lower forty eight states I've never experienced such just everything is danger everything makes you bite you and itches and you're sick and you're living on piranhas and you're out there and I couldn't speak it in the language, so I just I had nobody to talk to. I literally would hold on to my GPS and stare at it like it was just like outside tether to the world. Like here I am, I got this guy that's like two feet two with a bone through his nose and he's like my protector. And I was just like, he <laughs> has no idea who I you know, I had hair down to my shoulders, crazy wild man beard, you know, I'm covered in tattoos. And this dude's walking in front of me with a machete to keep me safe from the Jaguars.
0: And I was like, man, I have made a really bad decision right now, but I don't even know how to say go home. <laughs> wow. So did you contract malaria like they did in River of Doubt?
2: No, nah, I mean but you spend as much time traveling foreign countries as a field. Malaria just kinda of comes and goes. You know, you're just, you just know, more like a hangover. <laughs> a little Japanese
1: encephalitis, nothing else over <laughs>
2: yeah, A couple bumps here or there, whatever. Wow. But uh no, yeah. I got I, I got really sick actually out there and um it was um I don't know what it was for. I was eating these rats, these cane rats. They call them jacarés. And um, I don't think we cooked it good enough one night. But I was sick for, like, a week. I thought I was going to die out there. And the guy kept trying to give me this mixture of these plants. I was like, I thought maybe it was, like, the ayahuasca or something. I wasn't really sure. So I didn't take it. And uh ended up stuffing it out and, and making it home. And, and the weird thing is, I came home. I wasn't talking about war anymore. I was I was talking about this experience in the Amazon. It was like it had become this new normal for me. And at the time, you know, I, I was, uh, shortly after that, that's when I, you know, I was a, uh, I spent four years as a private contractor um, for the agency. And, uh, you know, our unit was depicted in the movie 13 uh, Hours in Benghazi. And, you know, I did another nine deployments for the, for them around the world And uh, before I, I fully retired and then also exited out of the Navy. That's and that's a- really when those experiences started coming together. I started realizing that it's actually struggle that gives things in life value so by reducing the struggle you actually polarize the bad experience and you make it worse and that's what i mean that the process that guys encounter when they come home is wrong it, it, it's wrong because you go from super high pressure to no pressure that that change in the middle i know it can kill you i i, I know many 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 guys who have taken their own lives and um there it to me it's it's not combat that's doing it it's it's what they encounter when they come home.
0: And now you have a unique viewpoint, and I think it's the right viewpoint after hearing you talk to me about it on the phone, about PTSD, about, you know, obviously, look, the way you, the way you put it, I look at what I've been through life as nothing close to what you've been through in all the deployments, the things that you've seen, obviously, some very hardcore, um, some very hardcore hairy situations that you've been through. Uh, But you have a unique way of looking at PTSD, whether you are a veteran or a civilian.
2: Well, I think like PTSD is has become a it's become a identity. I think that everybody has PTSD. Listen, Mm -hmm. how come how come here's a good instance? I had a guy come through the program uh, who um, was in Haiti putting people in body bags during the hurricane, which was obviously a terrible thing. And then he's 100% disabled, PTSD, you know, getting all the benefits and all those things. And then you've got, like, youth groups from the, you know, the First Baptist Church in Georgia going over there, you know, 13-, 15-year-old kids over there doing the same job and then just going back. To me, like, there's a fundamental disconnect. If you let life happen to you, you are always the victim. And if you let life happen for you, then you always have a choice. And it's in our choices that's freedom from everything. I fundamentally know that you have the ability to think greater than you feel. If you can think bad about something, inversely, you can think good about something. But what happens is we relinquish those choices to a system. And we're always looking for someone to tell us what to do, how to think, 12 steps to this, the 10 day detox, the this step to happiness, come over here and you turn into a gold nugget, whatever is out there. <laughs> and it, it's insanity because there's no original thought. Everything that you need in this life, you're fundamentally born with. It's inscribed upon your DNA, and that's why you're here. And when that purpose runs out, so do you. Now, whether you find it or not, that's up to the choices we make. So to me, we've really created a welfare entitlement society about veterans. Like, I mean, I work with the worst of the worst. Guys that have been shooting meth, guys that have been in and out of jail, the worst of the worst. And... I like the worst of the worst because they become the best of the best. And what do I do? Nothing. I put them in a situation and circumstance that is so hard and so difficult and so long that the only direction they have to look at a certain point is within. All the labels come off, all the lies, all the diagnosis, all these crazy things that everybody has. And then when they're done, what they've learned, well, have their problems go away? No, they're still there. Same problems car payments legal problems all these things are still there but their approach has fundamentally changed as they attack from the inside out not the outside in.
0: yeah great point great point now at what point after your trip to the amazon and you get back at what point did it jump into your mind that that having these veterans come to montana to jump into this program was was really the way of, of getting this done of helping these men
2: yeah. So I got, you know, I got out of the teens and then I ended up, you know, I stayed in the reserves. So I was still doing stuff with them. And then I started contracting. So I didn't start doing that until I moved out to Montana in 2012. And, um, you know, I ended up meeting some cowboys and stuff and with horses. I met actually met them in the back country. And the crazy thing is, you know, I started going to these guys ranches and riding and at the time they were exactly the type of person I was. I was very brutal, you know, like, uh, you wanted to fight me, I will fight you. I will, I, and I don't mean, like, I will fight anything. I just was like, you wanted to be strong, I would be stronger. I, I, I had such a mentality about me that was very caustic, and these guys were very brutal on the horses. You know, they. I learned all kinds of crazy stuff, and obviously hopefully there's no horse lovers out here because they're like, oh, my God. But, like, the old way was, was force, fear, and repetition. Force, fear, repetition. And you essentially created slaves out of these animals. You know, there's a better way, which is letting it be their own free choice and not to get into how you break horses. But um, these guys really like put me in a situation where I was always fighting with these animals. I was fighting. I was being bucked off, kicked, dragged. I've seen horses go off cliffs and die in the backcountry. Um, and then, you know, some guys came along. And were like, hey, there's like a better way. And when, I, when that changed and my perspective changed, that's when my life began to change because I realized, I was the cause of all my own problems. Uh, It wasn't war. There was not a little guy with strings attached to my head making me do things. It was like it was all my own choices, and I had to take ownership of those choices, and that's when I began to learn and grow. And those horses, they became a reflection of who I was, and that wasn't a good person. That was an angry person. That was a mean person. That was a person I made a lot of excuses about all kinds of things. And that's when I realized that, you know, why I had gone to the Amazon, why I ran the Ironman, why I took on all these challenges, because ultimately what I was just looking for in the end was me.
1: Well, and you can apply that just to kind of anything in life, man. I mean, it's the, the choice to kind of get out of your own way and to lack of a better term, sort of stop playing the victim and not to, not to go all Anthony Robbins, but it is your moment of decision where your destiny is formed. And I mean, I, it's really powerful, man, because so many people define themselves by their tale of woe, whatever it is, and it's well, it's it's so much larger
0: than that. That's the thing I want to I want to know also is how long will you sit at a table with somebody who's complaining, Micah?
2: About forty five seconds. <laughs> I can't take it because, like, what I'll do is I'll start just picking them apart, kind of like, kind of like a Jordan Peterson picks apart like a stupid news anchor, right? Like you, you just start to see and everything. it's like, well, you know what's going yeah you're a vet yeah i'm a vet like cool cool man like, yeah va really they're really fucking me over I'm like, oh sorry the va's really screwing me over and uh and i'm like oh really What? Well, how- yeah they're giving me all these pills they're making me take them I'm like they're holding you down and making you take them he's like well no but you know they're making me do it I'm like, well how are they making you do it <laughs> right well they're and then we start going down this road right it's always there's no ownership in anybody's choices at all. Right. And I ultimately like realized that the change, you can't change people. People change through pressure and time period. And it's struggle that gives everything in life value. Like what kills you more Lipitor and donuts or 4am and running shoes. <laughs> Amen. You know, right. I, I did. A, I did like a, I did like a TEDx last year and it was really funny because my title is an anti-motivational speaker. And, of course, all these people are like, you know, I come rolling up with like slick back hair covered in He was like a cowboy. They're like, you know, they're talking about growing vegetables and stuff. And um, I walked in there and they took a look at me. I was like, so like, what do you mean by that? I said, that's all that's all fake. Because when the motivator leaves, so does the motivation. It's over. You never learned how to take control of the greatest gift we have in this life. To me, that's purpose. And it's purpose that allows people to overcome their external circumstances. And the only way you can find it is going through that forging process, which really peels you down to nothing. It breaks you down until you finally look at who you are. And that's when growth really begins in, a, in an individual. So I don't, I don't, I can't stand it. I mean, I have screened through hundreds of applications every year. And the narrative if I could string all the applications together, hundreds of guys every year. It would all be the same. It's all the same. It is all the same exact story, the same exact narrative that every single guy is telling. It's the same.
0: Been, many of them have been programmed, if not all, by VA by VA programs, by doctors telling them what's wrong with them and everything else. And so they they come to believe what they're told, that narrative, correct? Absolutely. Listen, the thing
2: is, like, you got to have your own mind. Like, you roll into these people, I sit down, it's like, There's a girl sitting there. She's like, you know, or a guy or whoever. You walk in there, you sit down. They're like, they got a little, they got your little record, and they're like, okay, uh, trouble sleeping. You're like, yeah. I mean, like, oh, did you say you're like, I I mean, I guess, like, I mean, sometimes. Oh, okay. Uh, You ever get angry? You're like, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, guy cut me road rage. You're like, well, no. I mean, I just, I was going to the Walmart park. I don't know. And they're like, okay, yeah, PTSD. You're like, oh, geez. And then. And that's really when the problems begin. You start getting these diagnoses. I had a guy show up. who's was 25 years old. I was on 14 medications. I, I had a guy that had his, was, had his fight or flight nerve blocked. Like you would block somebody for, you know, you're doing an ACL repair. They do a nerve block on you. Right. They block the fight or flight. They're doing experimentation with that. And when that wears off, I mean, I, we had stampeding horses running towards this guy. And I was like, get out of the way. And he just stood there like a zombie. Wow. And how come World War II veterans who experienced the most horrific atrocities, 49% of them came home and started businesses that are still operating today. Well, what what programs were there for them? Zero. Who said? None. Right. Great point. So what's there today? 21% of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans are attempting to get jobs or go to school. You turn on the media, what has it got? The guy is in the... Grocery store, and he drops a can of soup, and he starts crying, and remembers the tank. Most guys have never even really seen any combat, and it's it's a it's a problem, and it's become an entitlement society. And I'm pretty much the only guy out here that I know that's really saying what it is. And if anybody's got a problem, I'll give you my address.
1: <laughs> do you get? Do you find? I mean, do you get any kind of resistance from from other? I mean, even older veterans, or even just veterans in general. On your on your particular approach,
2: no, because this is the thing. It works,
1: right? Right. You can't argue with success, right?
2: No, like I promise you that I can put enough pressure on you that you will you will learn about yourself. I promise you, I can do it. Like I I could take somebody as like uh, you know you stick them on Mount Everest and they're fighting for their life. All of a sudden, their whole perspective changes. These guys are literally fighting for their lives, but they're fighting to climb out of the the, the tar pit that was created, the narrative pit that was created for them by everybody else. and to me, I mean, I would say eighty percent of the guys that show up in my program are on more than three medications.
0: And so when they when they arrive, do they do they get off of the medications then after they arrive? are they are they told they have to do that or is it a, a gradual weaning or you know because you have them eat organic foods, meat and, and vegetables? You clean up their systems, a lot of hard work, a lot of working with horses. Uh, you know, is that the process?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, ultimately, like, I'm not, I mean, everybody knows my stance on it, but, like, a lot of guys do start weaning off the of meds before they show up uh, because there's, you know, we help them get in shape if they need to. they got to read two books before they arrive. They get We have a communication strategy, and then, you know, there's a whole food eating when they get here, and then, you know, it's 40 days, no days off. Uh, every day starts at 4 a.m. with, you know, if we're if we're back at base camp, and they're living in wall tents. Um, then it's 4 a.m. The days begin. They got PT in the morning, and then breakfast, and then work ends at 10 o'clock at night when we finish the leadership program, rain or shine. And guys start to realize that these they don't have. There's no trouble sleeping because they're like they've never worked so hard in their entire life. Right. And especially guys that didn't grow up with horses or ranch work or anything like that. I mean, they're the, the guys from like New York City and stuff. They're like, yo, this is treacherous, son. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it, it, they, we encourage that in a sense, but like that has to be their own free choice because once again, I'm not telling them how to think or what normal looks like or what to do. I'm saying that you have the answers. And by going through this process, you'll find what your authentic answers are you know, like, and they're within, that's it. Because if I tell them, follow me and do this and do that, then I'm the next, you know, 12 steps to freedom guy. I'm the next, I I don't do that. It's about original thought and everyone's original thought is different.
0: Now I watch, I, I recommend for everybody out there to go to YouTube and watch 500 miles, heroes and horses, 500 miles, because that I've watched it four or five times already. It, it it is captivating to watch these guys and watch you guys train these horses work with them, and then pack them all up and ride five hundred miles through the mountains it's It's an impressive impressive documentary
2: yeah we so that was the story you know I came up with that it when we rode wild mustang it was actually seven hundred and sixty miles we ended up oh, riding nervous. and it we it's a story of the unpurposed horse and the unpurposed human being, so you got the wild mustang. Which is identical, just like the veterans. Million fifty, sixty million dollars a year being blown on these horses. They're in captivity. You know, they got all these different programs. Nothing's really working. It's just mismanagement, and it's the same exact thing with these veterans. They're both lacking one thing. Well, before you could see the beauty and ride these horses and experience a relationship with them, you have to overcome the fear, and you have to overcome the violence and all those things. But then those animals, they become your closest friend, and, and what would they go through? They essentially went through the Heroes and Horses program as horses. And yeah. it doesn't matter if you're a horse or you're a human. It, it, people change through pressure and time. Either, you know, um, like an IED blast changes you from a solid to a gas at 30,000 feet per second or a drop of water on a stone over a 1,000 years. It's the same thing. People change through pressure and time, and that's what this medium is, is pressure and in time it's the same way our bodies change we destroy them we feed them they grow back stronger we destroy them we feed them they grow back stronger when you hit 40 they start that's uh money.
1: that's a good old adage from from red from shawshank redemption man pressure and time
2: is it yeah well, <laughs> hey well listen I, honestly like I'm i've not- never heard that. i've never heard that but it's so simple to me because people change through pressure everything changes through pressure and time so like you know, I believe from we came, from we will return, and those principles apply to us as human beings.
0: And now let's go, I want to go back to the way that you, you were taught to train horses after, the, you know, you said that, you know, being tough, being hard on them, the fear that's instilled in them, everything else. And I never, it never dawned on me that, yes, we are a predator, and, yes, horses are a, a pack animal. They are a prey animal. And if you act aggressive around them, they're terrified. And so you just you learned a whole new way. Can you explain that process?
2: Yeah, I mean, if you look at, like, horses, um, they're, you know, their eyes are on the side of their heads. Well, our eyes are in the front of our heads, so obviously we're predators. All predators' eyes are in the front of their heads. Horses are on the side of their heads. They see independently. So, like, if they see something on the left, the right side does not know. Hmm. So, you know, we have horses that are we call cowboys broke that I get. You'll get them, you'll get on them on the left side, and everything's all good. You jump off the right side, and they foul kill you. Because they've never they've never seen it before,
0: uh, and
2: so but that's because their heads are down and they're looking different directions for predators, and then they're a flight animal. They have the highest VO2 max of any land animal on Earth. Um, you know, the faster they, that's why their noses are flared. So they're designed to do one thing and one thing only: run away from predators as fast as possible,
0: you know,
2: <laughs> thirty-five, forty miles an hour. And I've been on some of those death rides through fences, like, and anyway. How you get the horse to get to a place where you can put a saddle on them and you can have this unity between essentially lion and lamb yeah. is, is by putting them in tough situations and then releasing the pressure for them at the right time. So horses learn through not the application of pressure, the old cowboy way, but actually from the release of it. So I create a bad situation for the horse in the simplest terms. And then I give him a place where I need him to make a decision. When he makes the right decision, I immediately back the pressure off. And the horse thinks it's his own idea. So therefore, it's his own free choice. And the idea sticks with the animal because he thinks he thought it up. It's the same way we train these veterans. We put them in these situations and these circumstances that are dangerous. There is a risk component. It is extremely hard. It is very revealing about who you are as a person. But we give them the opportunity to make a choice, and it's their own free choice. We don't tell them what that choice is, but we give them the opportunity. When they do, then the pressure comes off. And so people and horses train in the same way, you know, through pressure and release.
1: That's super, super. Is it, it This whole process, I mean, its I've seen this kind of played out recently recently. Um, prisoners working with animals and dogs and just different kind of animals. Is, is this something that's just kind of this method? Is this just kind of specific? I guess your, your application is just more specific to PTSD, but can people with like addiction problems do something like this or just, you know, other issues?
2: Yeah. I mean, listen, horses, a horse is gonna mirror as a prey animal. I can talk about the biology of a horse forever on here. Like they there are just okay. incredible creatures, but like they, if you have a serious anger problem or anxiety or nervousness, whatever, the horse immediately begins. Remember, they're a prey animal, so they react to sensations from predators. So as you begin to approach that animal, he begins to mirror your behavior. And so you can have the calmest horse. And a guy could, you know, I had a guy, I came through, he was a ranger, and he walked over, like, this guy gave him, we really match the horse personality to the human. We're very, very very particular about that and this guy walks over to this horse and he's just the angriest guy
0: and he has like
2: a you know carrot or something he's walking towards the horse <laughs> and he looks like he's gonna like stab it in the face and he's walking he's like hey Sally and the horse starts freaking out and ripping at the halter and like he That's runs creepy. back or whatever and I was like bro look at your body right now his shoulders were up he had the carrot in his hand and he's just coming at this horse <clears> just to he." <throat> be- he was so unself-aware, and so finally, when he began to learn about himself, that's when that bond really happened between you know the horse and the human because it's it, it's a partnership, it's a relationship. So there's a organization out there uh, in Wyoming that takes prisoners, and I know the old cowboy that runs it, and for 25 years he would take they worked with wild mustangs. This is long before there was any you know fanfare about mustangs and he would take the most dangerous criminals and line them up in a huge arena and turn all the wild horses just loose in there, and they had to stand there. Now, obviously, they're not going to attack you. They're a prey animal. they can run away, they want to run away. Um, They'll only fight if you have them tied and restricted. So they're running around. These guys are standing there. They're totally terrified, hardcore con. And he said in 25 years, the horses would stop and they would always peg their ears when they point towards danger. They'd put pin their ears forward at the one or two most dangerous criminals in there, murder, rape, whatever. And he would always write their names down in a little book and go back and look at their record. And the horses would always identify the most violent man there. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's not like, that's real. And, um, you know they're designed to stay alive, just like we are. They're always on the lookout for danger, and so they can recognize something that you may not even recognize about yourself. And that's what's really unique about the horse-human it's, relationship.
0: It's, it's it's spot on because I spent summers on my grandma's farm down in southern Iowa, and they had horses down there. And I remember being I was probably four or five years old, maybe maybe at the time, and I got bit by a horse. I got bucked off onto a barbed wire fence by a horse. And then when I was an adult, my mom had Arabians. And the Arabians, I was afraid of horses, and they knew it. They could register it right away. I got on one of her Arabians to ride it. The horse took off. They. My mom didn't tell me that they worked off body signals by squeezing your legs together. That means go faster. I'm pulling back yeah. on the reins. The horse isn't slowing down. I had to jump up on the saddle with my feet and dive off of the horse. And my mom's just laughing at me the entire time. But that that tells you my experience with horses. In, in no, the I actual. mean that's true. I mean,
1: Mike, like, is there any way you could turn the bright up on your, your sun setting behind you, and we could barely see you? But that's totally. I remember um, uh, Bill Burr in his comedy special. He was like, he had a pit bull that he had to give away, and like he would, Bill would like, get all amped up watching sports and stuff, and he'd look at his dog and like settle down, dog. But you wonder why your dog has this game six look on their face because they're just feeding off your energy. So I mean that's that's absolutely true. I mean it's it's interesting how that obviously applies to to quite a few animals, you know, horses included.
2: Well, you know, packing is a really particular old-fashioned art. It, and when I talk about it being hard, you know, there's, listen, I, I'm a hard dude. And this is hard. When you've got, you know, you, you the guys will ride, you know, 400-plus miles in this program having no horse experience. And then Packing is an art form of taking these saddles, whether it's a, a Decker saddle, which is a type of saddle which is designed by the U.S. military, and then, or a sawbox saddle, putting all your gear and equipment, like Lewis and Clark, tying it down with a series of knots, and then stringing the animals together, tying them together, all pigging together. Well, you know, you're going up 10, 11,000 feet switchbacks. You got animals that are tied together, and it, all those animals have personalities. Some don't get along. Hambone doesn't like parrot, and parrot doesn't <laughs> like two socks, two socks doesn't like Grumpy, whatever. And you know, they get in fights and things happen and bears run out. I mean, animals run out. It's, you know, horses go off cliffs. You know, they run away. There's just, and let me tell you something. When you have horses on a switchback and it's hundreds of feet down, and one thing the movie doesn't depict was we had a really bad wreck in there. We had four horses go off cliff. Um wow. They lived, but they fell like, one fell almost 200 feet down and landed upside down and lived. Wow. Ran it upside down. We had to cut him out with a handsaw. It was like, wow. it was just crazy. And so, you know, when you're out there, there is no rescue. There is no like calling in. It's totally, you're relying on those animals. And I think it really reduces everything away. So it becomes like you're really in a primordial state. You know, you're, it's about food and taking care of the animals and moving to the next location. And
1: when you had that one vet, I forget I forget his name off the top of my head, a little bit older, and you guys didn't, I don't think, showed it on the film. But
0: No, it was on there with the what cactus, he, and they got buried he, well, in the cactus. Well, he didn't show the really actual knows.
1: crash, but, yeah, he got concussed. It was cactus all in him, cactus in the horses, and he insisted to keep going.
2: <laughs> Let me tell you something. That day, oh, my God. So <laughs> I, was, I was behind him riding this horse we call it Chunk, and he was one of the Mustangs. And a mountain biker, we were coming through the superstition, I think, national forest into the wilderness. So in the wilderness, you can't take a mountain bike, nothing mechanized, nothing with a motor, nothing with wheels. You can only walk or have a horse and the But in the national forest, in some areas, you can ride mountain bikes or dirt bikes or whatever. And we're coming around this, like, switchback, and it's just, like, the most horrible place, like, cactuses, cholla cactus everywhere. I mean, it was, like, the... I don't know how to describe it without saying a bad word, but it was really, really bad. And I just see this mountain biker come down, and he had the map in his hand because we were talking because we were going to ride all through the night, which happens, you know, often on those kind of trips. Stuff happens. So we realized we're going to be there for an all-nighter. And the mountain biker collided into him. His horse reared back, and the horse has 40 pounds of bone in his head, hit him in the face, broke his nose, his occipital, uh, his his, uh, orbitals. Uh, busted his jaw, knocked him unconscious, and he landed face down in a cactus. Oh. And, I mean, he was unconscious in a cactus. And a huge cactus. And my horse was just fucking like crazy, and I just let go of all the other horses. And they ran off into the desert and got caught up in the cactuses. And I got, I got off the horse, I hobbled my horse, and I was like, I'm not coming off this guy. I get over to him, and I roll him over, and he's just... Face is just blood. He's like, uh, you know. And it was, it was the next day. You know, he got med-flighted out of there. Got to get a medevac. The next day, um, he rode with us. And there's a shot in that movie where we're riding down the railroad tracks, and that was that day. And it was just showed his level of commitment because we wanted to tell this story that look at, it, you know, there's a way that you can change, but change equals commitment. And that's why most people don't change because they don't have commitment tied in with change. They want change but they don't want commitment. Yep. And it was it was a really, really special thing, you know. I think I think ultimately social media and all these, you know, digital mediums, like they harm us. They harm us from going out and doing the real thing.
1: Yeah. Amen, they brother. Harm,
2: they harm us from going to the Amazon. They they harm us from saying, you know what, I want to be a UFC player. I want to do that. They they harm us from that because we get the same feeling by watching it. And I actually think it contributes to the evolution of mankind. And people are always like, man, I want your life. I'm like, you're, you have no idea what you're talking <laughs> about. I want my life, period. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible story. And, it, and to me, it's reached millions of people and veterans from around the country have been so impacted by that because uh, I think there is a big group of guys that, like, they want to change. They want to move on in their life. They want these experiences and situations and circumstances to become building blocks of growth in their life.
1: Instead of a pill, of course. I mean, that's just, you know, obviously a Band-Aid on these things. But to actually change, you know, your mindset, your brain chemistry, if you will, naturally. I mean, it's just, it's it's night and day, obviously, I would imagine.
2: Anything to do with anything of any value, whether we're reading about you know Martin Luther King or Steve. Jobs, it doesn't matter. Everybody has to enter the suck fest and mm-hmm. be permitted to see it through the other side. We just love reading these stories and these. You know these. Watch this video and your life will change tomorrow. You know every story is the same. A guy had to overcome an obstacle and then he learned about himself and now he's great.
1: That's it. <laughs> That's, that's it. Yeah. And, and that's ultimately the function I mean the nature of this show everything combat because life is a fight everybody has a fight we're we're dealing with to get you know hopefully to the next level or, or like you said out the other side but i mean again i think so many people they're so adverse to adversity that they just went to wave the white flag at the at the at the sign of any challenge
2: see i actually have to disagree because the for like 5 years in a row the number one growing business in north america was obstacle course racing. Okay? You get your friends, you run like three miles, roll around the dirt, they electrocute you, you pay them <laughs> to do this. Yeah. You get a message like three bucks made in China or whatever. And now you go back to the office that Monday morning and everyone's like, now you're the hero of the
1: Yeah, office. yeah.
2: Well, back when I was <laughs> in what they call the mud bog. <laughs> 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 right? And, the thing is, we we can't help it. Why do you think the show Naked Afraid is so big? Yeah, <laughs> people watch it. Okay, people just watch it. And say, honey, it's on. And then they sit there and they're like, huh, Well, I would see, I would have, I would have got that stick over there. Yeah, I made an umbrella. <laughs> All right. And so we are so geared to realize that struggle gives everything in life value, but when our opportunity comes, most people don't take it. They run away. I would. And they're yeah. watching their shows, and then they wonder why their life sucks.
0: Well, wow.
1: don't yeah. talk about it. Be about it. It's it's hard for folks to talk uh, to be about it. They can talk all day. It's just a matter of you know put, putting those words into action, without a doubt. I have to ask you going on. I mean, you have obviously such a large team with what you guys work with out there. Tell me a little bit about Team Skeleton. I think Randy Couture, former Hall of Famer, former champion Pat, is on Team Skeleton. Tell me a little bit about Ske- Team Skeleton, sir.
2: Yeah, Mark Leano, He started. Uh, he started, uh, you know, skeleton optics, which has been great. They're, uh, they, you know, Mark's been sponsoring me since he he started up. Um, and you know, he's really, matter of fact, he's here at Shot Show, and he's he's a guy that really cares about that. He himself is a veteran, and he's about bringing guys together, supporting like veteran initiatives, and building a team of people that live a really unique life, and and trying to showcase them, and then obviously. You can't showcase anything if you can't see, so that's why he makes glasses.
1: Well, that skeleton optics, as you <laughs> said, is a vet-owned small bit. We actually received a vet-owned small business certification from the Department of VA.
2: Okay. Yep, yeah, Mark, 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 and Lori are just wonderful people, and he's got all kinds of team guys, military guys, u s c fighters. I know, um, you know, he's got punters, uh, climbers. And he's building a really unique community of people, um, you know, around a product that one is, is supports a lifestyle that so many live, and two, like, gives back to the veteran community in a really unique way.
1: Without a doubt, shout out to Randy.
0: Like, <laughs> Randy is a Randy is a good man, and and so I'm glad you've got him involved. And so I wanted to ask you what what probably strikes me the most about this is the impact you have on the veterans and. The moment that they have to walk away from that ranch and those horses has to be very emotional for those guys.
2: Yeah. You know, this is the thing. It's easy to – we provide tools. And they have to use those tools when they leave. You know, it's, yeah. it's easy to be in a place where you're surrounded by people. And, listen, I don't even know how many guys in the program I have to talk off the ledge that try to quit. Oh, my God. The toughest guys, all they try to quit all the time. And ultimately, they're not quitting on me. They're quitting on themselves. And when they start to gain these tools, all of a sudden, you can throw anything at them, and they just overcome it, and they just start facing it. Well, our goal is to continue that on, and that's why we actually – we have a phase three that they go to, so it's like an internship. And they got to take those tools, and they got to apply them in real life because what this is real life, not fake life. And so – Fake life is like, you know, you go to the, you know, there's a lot of, I call it vacation for veterans, whatever, I'm not knocking it, but, you know, they take these guys, they catch a little trout, and they spend three days, they get a jacket, and they get a fishing pole, and they go home, and they, they kill themselves. Because they don't, they haven't been given any tools. They've been given a momentary reprieve into, from real life into fake life. And so we really provide them tools, and that's part of our leadership program that they go through which really is all about them. It's based on the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius and stuff for myself and my, uh, I got to bet that works for us. Chief operating officer uh, was a major in the Marine Corps, a really good friend of mine, uh, Rick Franco. And he, uh, you know, him and I take our life lessons and put them all together. It's a very simple tool. Like, because like, for instance, there's only two boxes in life. There's the yes box and the no box. And anybody that tells you that it's any different, as far as I'm concerned, lying. And really, it's always yes or no. Either I accept this or I don't accept it. That's it. Either I accept being 350 pound blob or I don't. Like that's it. Like when I was doing the TED thing, they're like, "Well, I was going to say all this stuff about obesity," and lady's like, "Well, it's, it's all it's genetics." And I was like, "That's actually not true." Yeah, yeah. I said, if you ate carrots and walked from New York City to Los Angeles, would you lose the weight? She's like. Well yeah. I was like, Okay, so you can overcome your genetics. Right. She's like,
0: Well
2: you know, that's extreme. I'm like, Life's extreme. Yeah. You want extreme results and be extreme. I I, had a guy that was like he was like, Well, I don't know if I can come, I got my car and this and that. I said, I'm gonna tell you, do you wanna change your life? He's like, Yes. I said, Then I'm gonna buy you a bus ticket And I said, Leave everything in your apartment He's like, Like everything? I was like, Yep, just leave. I was like, You're gonna get kicked out anyway. He said, what about my car? I said, leave it. It's a piece of junk. He's like, what? I was like, do you want to change your life? He's like, yeah. I said, then get on this bus right now. Wow. He packed up everything, left all his stuff, came up, came through, and that guy is, has a fantastic life today.
1: The moment of decision, ladies and gentlemen. Your life can be transformed. I had a question. Or actually, it's a Facebook question. How long do you guys, how long does the program last? An individual, when they, you know, from beginning to end, how long do they stay in the program?
2: So the program's forty days long, uh, forty days and forty nights, and then uh,
0: that sounds um, familiar. <laughs>
2: hey, that's real. Yeah. And so uh, and then there's a follow-on internship afterwards that we provide guys. So that's four to six weeks. Okay. So that's like nine weeks total from start to finish.
1: Well, you mentioned Marcus Marcus Aurelius, and I'm assuming you're talking about the book Awakenings by Marcus Aurelius. Some of his writings. I, that's uh, if it's not the same one, then I'll shut my mouth. But Marcus Aurelius's awakenings is absolutely some great, great uh messages and insight about, you know, humans overcoming Coming. et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yeah, well you know, he said choose not to be harmed and you haven't been harmed, choose to be harmed and you've been harmed. Yeah. you I mean, that's that's about sums up life right there. And you know, I always use the example of you know, it's not a religious program or anything like that, but I always use the example like one of the greatest public displays of personal torture was in humiliation was against Jesus, right? Like, so they spit out, tortured the guy, ripped him apart, recorded across Grecian, Thessalon, all these different societies recorded it. And ultimately, he gave the example that life is really hard. Like, and life sucks, and you have to suffer, and you have to endure. And, but the reality how he was able to overcome all those challenges was through purpose, and purpose allowed him to overcome his external circumstances. Well, people are like, how do you find purpose? That sounds really nebulous. Purpose is found through a process. Like the very bad, worst thing that you're facing right now could actually be your greatest opportunity.
0: Without a doubt. That is, that is so true. And it's, it's like your fellow former Navy SEAL David Goggins says, you know, he, he deliberately does something that sucks every day to prepare himself for that day when he gets a phone call that his mother has passed away. And this is a guy who was obese and decided that he was going to become a Navy SEAL, became a Navy SEAL, now has gone on to run numerous ultras, run, I mean, back-to-back ultras, like eight or ten of them, weekend after weekend. The guy's an amazing runner. And it's, it's, that, it's that mindset where you deliberately set out to torture yourself to make yourself stronger. Now, I can give you... An example of myself only in jest because I set out to run the Leadville 100 about three years ago and. I definitely tortured myself. I, I fell at, at mile eight. I fell down a mountain, and then they kicked me out at mile 24 because I looked like a, 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 pardon the expression, a horse that was ready for the glue factory. But <laughs> I was limping so bad. But I'm going, listen, I'm going back this year because I want to torture myself again and make myself stronger. And will I succeed? I don't know. But I tell you what, I'm going to give it a shot. And I'm, I've never considered myself a runner. But I've made it 75 miles before, and that's that's what it's all about, man. It's just setting out to do things you didn't think you could do.
1: Without struggle, there is no progress.
0: No,
2: absolutely not. There's no pro- you can't. You know, there was a study that Harvard did um, about how you how our mind works, right? That we have the ability to think greater than we feel, and so they took a group of people and they had them do bicep curls for like ten weeks, you know, and they studied them. Then they had the other group that just sat there and meditated for ten weeks. For thirty minutes a day about the bicep, yeah, uh, exercise, and the bicep group averaged thirteen point five percent of the people that never lifted a weight, and we have that ability to overcome obstacles in the way that we think. We and have- what what Dave is doing, I mean, like he's out there. Obviously, he's an inspiration, like so many people. Uh, I don't think that Navy SEALs are anybody particular special. I think they just they got put in that situation. It's a series of yes or no's do you accept stripping down naked and rolling around in the dirt for a week without eating or like, you know, just being tortured and accosted? And <laughs> you, they, they, add, they give it to you every day. You're like, do you accept this or do you not accept this? And uh, one example is in Bud's where they lined this up and we are like, okay, a two mile run for time. They're like, all right, pays to be a winner against standing nap. You run down two miles. They're like, you guys are all losers. Like nobody tried their hardest. I'm like, man, that's like the best I've ever ran. They're like, they're like, all right, line it up again. Like. You go two more miles. You run back another two miles, you're like, stop, like be a winner, like you guys are losers, you don't care about America. Like you're like, What? Like, all right, another two mile run. You're like, Okay. All right. So like another two mile run. This continued on, like, into the wee hours of the morning. Where it's like, I don't even know, we had run maybe like thirty miles or something, and and it it got to the point where like people were like they're like, We will continue this for the next week. The breast of like hell weed and everybody was like looking at them and like ten dudes just quit. <laughs> wow. And they just walked away, and I was like, I was looking at them, and I was like, Man, those guys are Jesus. And uh they walk over there and they quit, and then they're like, Okay, we're done with this exercise now, on to the next thing. And it was amazing because all that I did was just in that decision in that in in that horrible situation was just make the decision either I accept this or I don't accept it. Because that's and that's what life throws at. We cannot change situations and circumstances. And, and unfortunately, we allow life to happen to us. Just listen to people talk. Just go to a oh, yeah. Go to a Starbucks. I mean, I can't even take it. I mean, there was a guy behind me eating lunch the other day. I was at a business lunch meeting, and he's telling he's a vet. He's behind me. I have these two goobers sitting there, like, in a chair, uh, and they're, like, taking him to lunch, and he's, like, giving them the whole vet sob story. Yeah, man, you know the and in back, like shh, man. He's like, oh, I mean, you buy him the beers? He's like, I'll do another one. And like, we're sitting there. He's giving this sob story. Basically, he sounded like the military stuffed him out of his house, like with a tube, and like started just a cough <laughs> He gave him nothing. And I'm like, I always tell guys, I'm like, listen, if you didn't realize when you joined the military, okay. You had to take a test. You had to lose weight. You had to draw pictures, you know, little guys with guns and circle yes or no. You had to do all this stuff to get into the unit, go through boot camp, do all these things. If you didn't realize that there was a chance that you might go to war, right. like, watch out for buttons that look like candy because you probably <laughs> wouldn't. <will look good. laughs>
1: You know what? Hearing you say like you know, it's true, man. Life is just a series of yes or no's. And what what's what came up in my mind just for weird, but the the series Band of Brothers. You guys seen that, Pat? You guys, Jay? of course. So the uh, the first episode, Currie, where they were just like dreading Currie. Everyone was puking, everyone was puking. But as they kept going, it's going. It's like you know what? We just ran Curry. You know, Sobel, I think was his name. The guy from David Schwimmer was the the head guy, right? And so he just comes up one day, and they're just running it by themselves, running it on their own. You know, what I mean, they 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 flip the switch. You know what I mean? It turned into. You know, and this sucks to like, you know what, we own this type thing. You know, you're not going to, I'm not going to be defined becomes by the norm. Becomes right. the norm. Exactly. It
0: becomes the norm and you accept it and you just do it. Yeah.
2: It's like joining Scientology, you know, you yeah. <laughs> work out good, you kind of accept it. And the next thing you know, you're like, you know, you're worshiping like a demon God from another planet. <laughs> <You're> like, <whatever.
0: laughs> well, or you're, or you're making Tom Cruise money, brother. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's crazy. Crazy. Now, I wanna bring this up. I did not know this about you until you had mentioned it, but you had done some, some boxing in your day.
2: Yeah, I did some boxing. I actually I grew up uh outside of Catskill, New York, and uh so I learned to box at Catskill Village Boxing Gym. And uh that was the same place where Mike Tyson obviously learned to box under your custom auto and you know right. his, his training crew. And uh yeah, I boxed in the amateurs kind of on and off, and, you know, I my, I just didn't have any support as a kid. I used to ride my bike down there all the time, and, you know, I, uh, you know, my parents, we didn't have a lot of money, and so I, we lived in a very, very rural area in upstate New York outside Catskill, and, and we lived in the same bedroom for the first couple of years that we even owned the house, my whole family. And, uh, you know, it was a really, really, like, tough time, which I look at, like, boxing is like a lot of down and outers like get into boxing
0: right yeah you're right
2: i wasn't that kid but i like to fight and i come from a long line of like kind of like tough guys or whatever and i started boxing and then i got picked it back up when i was going through uh the 18 delta course in fort bragg north carolina and i picked up like three amateur fights won them all by knockout and i fought in the north carolina state prison circuit as an active duty military guy nice um, i fought like a, a fight against like the this dude man he was just like really scary and i remember i was like in the maximum security prison like warming up and i'm just looking at this guy hit the bag i was like man i'm the next meat bag <laughs> we ended up we ended up getting a draw and nice. uh, yeah so i was like it was really good I and mean, it was it was great bout and ray mercer was there merciless so, Merciless Ray Mercer was there, former heavyweight champion. I used to hang out with him all the time. We used to roll around North Carolina, and I was, like, active duty. I had, like, a wife at home with a kid, and uh, he would pick me up, and he'd take me to this bar, and he'd be like, yo, he's trying to talk to me about staying away from crack and stuff. I was like, dude, I'm not doing crack, man. I'm like "See you, guy. Like, I'm not going to do that. We were going down, and he he's trying to, like, give me, like, life advice, and I was like, he's like, yo, you got to stay away from that home, son. And like, dude, I'm like, a newborn at the house. I'm good. And so I know I was active duty, so I started sparring with Ray um, on Saturday. And he was like getting back in shape. I think at the time he was going like, to do some MMA or whatever. And uh, who was the guy he knocked out? Him, Sylvia, out Tim baby. Sylvia. He crushed it. Well, let me tell you, I got a good shot of me punching Ray. But it's so deceiving because it looks like I'm just laying one in and he's kind of <laughs> I, He slipped that punch and hit me so hard. It was the only time in boxing I ever had to take a knee.
1: I'm I'm surprised he didn't catch an
2: attempt. I went square Street. I didn't even know where I was. I was, like, <laughs> I was on the ground like aye, 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 aye. He's like, you got to keep your chin down, big white Used to call me. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> I'm surprised, surprised he
1: didn't. Uh, I'm surprised he didn't catch an attempted murder beef for what he did to Tommy Morrison back in the day. That was brutal. Tommy was my guy too. Let
2: me tell you, Tommy. Yeah, but you know. I, I was a big time Morrison guy too. I don't know if you watched that thirty by thirty on. Yeah, it's man. heartbreaking, wow.
1: dude. Oh my god.
2: Yeah.
1: How they, far they, they can just, fall.
2: No so balance, like you know, guys get money, and like
1: yeah, they,
2: they don't have any of the the tools to put their lives together, and unfortunately, they just get. That was get, you
1: know, uh, so Mike Tyson was just on Joe Rogan. He's like, dude, you just can't imagine twenty years old becoming the first heavyweight champ. Like, no one's ready for that. Like, I mean, granted, Mike had some issues before that, but that certainly didn't help.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Mike had some issues. For sure. He was good he was good with pigeons before that though. <laughs> he was. Yeah. Yeah, but he do you do you remember hear the
2: story about the guy that killed the pigeon that's the first time he yeah. ever he was ever violent?
0: Yep. Yep.
2: Pushed him over the edge. Uh you know, somebody snapped his pigeon or something like that. And Ripped his head career. off. Ripped his head off. And I think a lot of these great guys, I mean I I'm so excited to see the the crow boxing get reignited, you know, everyone's getting excited about it because finally, you know, Vladimir got out of there and used about a fun to watch. After twenty
1: five his... years, that was insane.
2: It yeah. <laughs> just that long arm out there and then like, you know, just just it's just like a it's like a broomstick. It just like follows you around with it. But uh you know, it's getting boxing's getting exciting again and I still I still work out and uh, we used to have smokers in the military. And oh. uh, we had we were getting ready for deployment. Everybody was having all kinds of beef. And my chief, Jim, is like, hey, uh, I'll tell you what, everybody right on the board, one five-minute round, boxing, whoever they want to go, officers, enlisted, doesn't matter. Oh, so, my goodness. I just kind of sat back and, and seen all the names come up on the board, guys looking at each other, and there was some brutal knockouts. And can only um, he ended up getting in trouble because a couple guys got their noses broke and they couldn't dive or whatever. <laughs> and uh, there, there, I was thinking, like, I don't really have beef with anybody because... Whatever, and I was like sitting back, and one of the guys gets up and writes my name down. Oh like, boy, cool. So he writes yeah, my cool. name down. I show up there. I got like my my trunks with my name on it. And I got my <laughs> boots on. I haven't even worn these things in like years. I got my I got the old Tough Wear gloves. I put those on. They got headgear on. I was like, no thanks. I throw my mouthpiece in. I look at him. He's like, he looks at me. He's like, hey man, listen. I'm, I just I don't I'm I don't, I don't have a problem with the other two uh, guys.
0: <laughs>
2: you do now. I mean I'm not. What is the last hook? I let him hit me for about ten seconds and I just flatten him, unconscious. And uh, I love boxing to this day. i stay in shape and box all the time. I'm, I'm I love watching the old fights. You know I love watching Hagler. I love watching old Tyson fights, Fink fights. You know there's so many. So much, like, back in the day, you know, that's all there was on TV. And then, of course, yeah. when the UFC bout started coming on, and that's when I first learned about you guys, you know, I was like – it was like, you know, the 350-pound dude versus the, the guy that's trained in, like, African kung fu or something. Right. <laughs>
1: right. We just had George Foreman on, what, two weeks ago? Yeah, Incredible yeah. conversation. Now,
0: you know what, I've got to bring up, Micah, for you. I, uh, most, most Navy SEALs are not big guys. I mean, how big were you when you were going through Buds? Uh, I was probably like two. I
2: was probably like two oh five, two ten, six foot four. So okay, so there. you were
0: pretty slender at the time because a lot of guys. I, one of my friends that I went to high school with, who was a all American wrestler for the University of Illinois, he was a heavyweight and he was a big, big guy. He was probably two thirty five, two forty. Uh, went through and, and actually became a became a seal. Got on one of the teams, but it's it's not normal for big guys to make it through that process.
2: No, you stick out. And, like, the thing is, you got, like, kind of a noodle neck when you're tall. So you, like, carry them to You know, it's like giraffe neck, you know. You're, the little short guys, they're all, like, they're all shrugged up. But, um, no, I, I, I went, listen, I was on the telephone pole in Queens, New York <laughs> when the first plane hit the World Trade Center on 9 11. And I, I really had no desire to, like, I don't, I never, like, played soldier or anything like that. I just, I didn't, I didn't grow up like that. And, uh, I, they changed my life. You know, I, I pulled bodies out of, you know, rubble and it it really, really had a profound effect on me. And I I ended up joining up. I didn't even know what the Navy SEALs were. I had no idea. I went down and tried to join the army. And, uh, I was in the hallway. All these dudes are lined up out there and everyone's trying to join the, join the fight and stand up for America at the time. Back when people liked America. And, uh, I was there and a, and, a, and a Navy guy came out. He was like the dorkiest looking dude. He came out and he's like, Hey, man, he's just in the hall just poaching people. And uh, he's like, What do you do? I was like, I'm going to join the Army. He's like, Why do you want to do that? And I was like, You know, be an Army Ranger. He's like, Army Ranger? I was like, Yeah, he's like, Let me show you a video. He brought me in there. He puts in his like VHS and it's like, You know, I was like, I was like, Man, those dudes are bad dudes. He's like, you want to try out for that? I was like, sure. I had no idea. Like, nobody made it. <laughs> and, <laughs> no, <yeah. laughs> like, it was like a job in case you don't make it. I was like, what do you mean don't make it? He's like, well, you got to go through like a course. It's challenging, but, you know, you can get through it. Can you swim? I was like, kind of. <laughs> um, oh, jeez. That was like, yeah, that was how I joined up. I mean, I had no idea. And then I started like getting all these books and I was like, I, I mean, I showed up there with high school, there was college guys that were like, Jacked, like muscles everywhere. I was like really intimidated. I graduated eleven guys, original guys, out of my class.
0: Out of how out of many? Yeah. Out of how many? One hundred fifty-seven. So. Yeah, man. Was that a, was it a winter class? Winter class, yeah, February class. So how cold's the water at that time? Like fifty-four degrees or something? Yeah, it's in the
2: fifties. Yeah, oh, very very cold. Oh,
0: so brutal. So oh, so brutal. It was so. <laughs> brutal. <laughs> I was hey, look. I,
2: I surfed in that it. water. Quit right now. I just quit. If they did that to me. I'd be like, I
0: quit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I surfed in that water one time. I'll never go back.
2: Oh, never. man. It was, it was so real. We would have, we had one day, we were doing the surf passage in the little boat, and uh, we had some kids that had never even seen the ocean.
1: Oh, and boy.
2: the waves are like 10, 12-footers, booming in. We're all lined up on the beach, and they're like, all right, done your boat. The kid who had never seen the ocean before looked at us like, this ain't for me. And he just, I'll never forget him saying that. He just turns around, walks back, and just rings the bell.
0: <laughs> so, Micah, but this is unfortunately the end of our hour here. We've got about a minute left. I want you to be able to tell our listeners, look, where they can go to donate, volunteer, learn more about Heroes and Horses and about the project that you're doing, because it's incredible, and I want everybody to, to learn about it.
2: Yeah, 100%. I, listen, Pat, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, heroesandhorses.org. You can follow us on the Instagram at heroesandhorses, Heroes and Horses, uh, H-E-R-O-E-S, and you know get involved. There's tons of volunteer opportunities. There's opportunities to come out and cowboy and do ranch work, uh, support and cooking, all kinds of things. And then also like spread the word. You know check out the 500 Mile Project. We did a film called 180 Out with Yeti, uh, which is definitely worth checking out. So um, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Heroesandhorses.org. If you know of that, have them apply. Um, and, and let's, start, let's start going after the real problem and get to the root and uh, make changes.
0: I love what you're doing buddy Micah Fink thank you so much for being on with us this has been everything calm